This is Viterbi Voices, the podcast, your chance to hear stories about research, classes, student life, and more directly from our faculty, students, and other members of the engineering community here at the University of Southern California. Join us for episode 60, featuring Dr. Paul Rani, a professor in aerospace and mechanical engineering. We talk about his incredible journey through academia, his time at NASA, his thoughts on the evolution of mechanical engineering as a field, and of course, his passion for the Trojan family. Welcome back into the Turby Voices. This is episode... 60? Episode 61? No, episode 60. Episode 60. Yeah, we didn't talk about it before we hit record. It's episode 60. Um, my name is Paul Ledesma. I'm the Director of Undergraduate Admission here for the USC Viterbi School of Engineering. And my name is Rhea. I'm a junior studying biomedical engineering here at Viterbi. And uh, I have a minor in healthcare studies, pre-med. On campus, I work in the USC Biomechanics Lab and play Club Ultimate Frisbee. Cool. So we are your hosts. It's good to have you back. This is the first kind of official episode of the fall semester 2017. Rhea, you've been uh, classes for a, a little while now. How's yep. it going? Been three weeks. It's been going really good. It's it's really interesting being a junior because now I get to take a lot more. I'm out of the basic sciences now, so I can take the more interesting engineering electives and, and medical electives. Yeah, a lot of the biomedical stuff. curriculum, you have to do a lot of science yeah. work before you can get into yeah. stuff. At least you have engineering class all four years, but you get like you get yeah. full bore now, which is kind yeah. of cool. Um, so uh, this episode is super cool. There's mm-hmm. so much stuff that goes on into it. It's a little bit on the longer side, but if I could tell you anything, you want to listen all the way through the end because all of the NASA stuff, all of the astronaut stuff is at the end. Dr. Paul Ronnie in our aerospace mechanical engineering department, he teaches our introduction to mechanical engineering class here. So as a freshman in mechanical engineering, you will have him uh he's just a cool guy and he yeah. can talk and talk and talk about the discipline about his background experiences i mean we went we went over a lot of stuff yeah i mean he's also been to probably every top engineering school in the country whether that's yeah. for for teaching for as a student as a grad student and he has so much experience in combustion and heat transfer and really you we would talk about to him about almost every little sphere of astronautical and mechanical engineering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this, awesome. I, this idea of just being a, a, a young kid who wants to blow something up in his neighborhood. Yeah, and how that translated to him blowing things up almost in space. In space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, as a kid, I know so many. This was never my personal thing, but yeah. my brother really wanted to go to space. And, and so many of my friends were like, I want to be an astronaut. Uh-huh. And then combining that with, you know, like the magnifying glass and things on fire. Sounds like a childhood <laughs> dream to me. Yeah, really cool. So there's all sorts of things to, to dive into here, including like what mechanical engineering is all about and how yeah. the intro class works and how he teaches and his research in combustion and combustion and, and, and kind of smaller devices. And mm-hmm. uh, it it goes a lot of directions. So yeah. sit tight through it, but it's, it's, it's some really cool information. Um, but before we do that, a couple things to talk about. Um, we... In the admission world, if you are a prospective student, you um, we are in mid-September right now. Next week, we start our travel. And so all of the admission officers will be going out for some regional receptions. Uh, the first ones, uh, September 23rd and 24th, that weekend, are going to be in the Bay Area. And so I'll be up in the Bay Area in uh, 
San Francisco on Saturday and Santa Clara on Sunday for receptions in each of those areas. Uh, we will have one of our alums in Atlanta on Saturday, and uh, also the university, but we won't have an engineering wrap, but the, the rest of the university will be in Miami on Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, the 24th. After that, the next week, we're going to have uh, representatives from the university in Sacramento. Uh, for those of you international, we'll be in Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Taipei. That's all in two weeks, and also on the island of Hawaii. We'll be on Oahu. Uh, we'll be in San Diego on Sunday, October 1st, and then we move into the October dates, which I'm sure we'll have another episode at that point so we can promote that. All of our dates, all of our different cities, we'll be having re- receptions around the country and around the world. Uh, those are available at our website, viterbiadmission.usc.edu. Again, that's viterbiadmission.usc.edu. If you're a prospective student, that's where you go to learn all about our application process, see how you can visit with us, either on campus or off campus. There's so much stuff to do. Go to our website, check it out, uh, and if you're looking to learn more about student life, mm-hmm. uh, Rhea, you've got some stuff to tell them about, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the best resource for any prospective students who want to learn more about student life here at USC, um, me and some of the other Viterbi student ambassadors publish blogs on viterbivoices.usc.edu, talking about everything from housing, from classes, to research, to the clubs we're involved in. So really, every aspect of student life from our unique voices as current students are on that website. Mm-hmm. And we also have lots of podcasts, a uh, personal favorite of mine, about different with different faculty, different organizations you can be a part of, and those are much more in-depth interviews with people that are heavily involved cool. in those things. So. Very cool. Well, I think we should just get out of the way and yeah. get it and hand it over to Dr. Uh, Ronnie, who uh, will tell you all sorts of things about mechanical engineering and being an astronaut. Stay tuned all the way to the end to get to that NASA stuff because the stories about astronaut training are unlike any I've ever heard. Debunk some space myths. Debunk a lot yeah. of space myths. Space, I can't say that. Space, space myths. Space myths. Space, <laughs> space myths. Try saying that one three times fast. Space myths. Oh my God, that's going to bug me. <laughs> but he did debunk okay. It's a new one. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Hey, how are you? Hanging in there. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this so much. That's Thank your seat. You Go ahead and close the door. Thank you for so much for doing so this. So anything I say can will be used against me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll hook you up to the polygraph a little bit later as well. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm sunk now. Thank you for doing this. I really yeah, appreciate it. You really so made a mistake when you said something like, you know, what were the words you used? Uh, you can't talk too much. I really <laughs> don't want to say that to Member. I, I, oh no, yeah. we'd love to hear everything. So everything, actually, and that that is the great part about having faculty members on the podcast is that they're perfect because you never can talk too much on a podcast. Oh sure, of course. So, um, I, you know, I, I think as we talked over email a little bit, I mean, this is really just to get as much as we possibly can for whatever you want to talk about. But I think one of the coolest things is uh, to start with is that you have been here for quite some time. When did you start at USC? I've been here since 1993. 93. Wow. wow very cool. And um, so you, you teach in aerospace mechanical engineering. Um, but you've been to what I what I counted on your bio was four other in, top-notch engineering universities in some form or regard. Uh-huh. So you went to... Okay. Well, <laughs> go ahead. Just, so I started my undergraduate education at UC Irvine. Mm-hmm. Mm. And at the time, the engineering school there was quite new, and I decided I really wanted to have my degree from 
an engineering school with a better reputation. Of course, now UCI has a very good reputation, but they really didn't at that time. So I transferred to Berkeley, Mm. and so I spent my senior year at Berkeley. And by that time, I'd really gotten interested in the aerospace side of things, space. And Berkeley, as great as it is, they're really not that focused on the space applications. So uh, I moved to Caltech, got my master's there. I was hoping there would be some interaction with, say, JPL on spacecraft engineering, mm-hmm. but there really wasn't. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's the, um, the two, there really isn't very much you know, space engineering. There's lots of space science, yeah. planetary science going on at Caltech. And on the engineering side, you know, it's fluid mechanics and things like that, but not really the space engineering. So it wasn't quite what I was looking for there either. So I moved to MIT for my doctorate and spent uh, three and a half years in something called the Space Systems Laboratory Hmm. there. And it was a very unusual lab in that the students were more or less free to pick their own research topics because they were supported, the lab was supported by a block grant from NASA through the principal investigator, his name was Renee Miller uh, at MIT. And pretty much they had a block grant to sort of say, hey, NASA said, hey, kind of do spacey stuff. <laughs> kind of grants that I wish we could get nowadays. Spacey stuff. Sky's the limit, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Uh, and so I had to pick a thesis topic uh, for myself before one was picked for me that I didn't like. <laughs> so I just happened, just by pure chance, I happened to see on a bookshelf somewhere a book on reports of experiments that had been on Skylab. That was the first hmm. U.S. orbiting laboratory. They took the third stage of an Apollo moon rocket left over and turned it into an orbiting laboratory. Wow. And one of many experiments that were done on that, and they were mostly kind of gee whiz kind of experiments, not really hardcore science, but yeah. there was one that was done on... Uh, what they called zero-gravity flammability, that is seeing how materials like paper or plastics would burn in the absence of gravity. Because you think about how fire works. You know, you get some hot gases, the hot gases rise, and that's what entrains more air to continue the fire going. So what happens if you don't have that? Hmm. And that's what they were out to, to look at. And, you know, the results were kind of interesting. And this kind of intrigued me because I thought, well... A lot of kids go through the stage, I guess maybe not so much nowadays, but a lot of kids back then went through the stage where they like to make things blow up or burn. Oh, I'm sure. They still do. Yeah. yeah. Still do. <laughs> Blowing stuff up is still cool. <laughs> and, uh, well, half the things I did as a teenager, if I did them today, I'm going to have the FBI and the Homeland Security and the black helicopters circling overhead. Is this, where, then, is this where we're supposed to give a warning of please don't try this yes. at home? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the statute of limitations is one of all those things. But, yeah, half the things I did you know, it would be extremely unwise, well, maybe it was unwise to do them then, but be even more unwise to Got do it. them today. But anyway, so I had a lot of experience. In fact, uh, before I even got into high school chemistry, 
I had read high school chemistry textbooks to figure out how to mix my chemicals in the right proportions. <laughs> I knew all about stoichiometry yeah. and all you're, those you're things. You're a dangerous, dangerous yeah. boy. I was the most popular kid on the block <laughs> on the 4th of July. <laughs> on the 4th of, 4th of July. July yeah. Hey, look, I still have all my fingers, can still see out of both eyes. <laughs> so I always said, I never blew up anything I didn't intend to. Oh, that's good. That's good. And uh, certainly never to harm anybody or <laughs> do damage to anything more serious than a trash can. Well, that's cool. Uh, anyway, so I knew a lot about combustion. And got it. actually, in fact, part of my, uh, part of the reason I got into engineering was because I finally found something in chemistry. I, I took uh, chemistry actually in 10th grade in high school, mm-hmm. and I did very well. In fact, I won the school award for the best chemistry oh. student. Yeah. And so it was the first time I ever felt like I had really accomplished something. You know, I wasn't very good at sports or this or that or the other thing. But this was one thing. Finally, I found something that I was kind of good at. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of led me down a certain path. Anyway, when it came time to pick uh, pick a university, well, I'd sort of planned on going to UCI because it was close to home and I wasn't quite ready to go away to school, although, you know, I guess I could are you, have. Are you from the area, Orange County? Yeah, I grew up, well, first in Los Angeles, just like three miles from here. Oh, really? Yeah, in uh, View Park, which you probably haven't heard of, but uh, uh, Windsor Hills, maybe you've heard yeah. of. Yeah, yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows about Windsor Hills because a dam broke there in 1964. <laughs> Put it on the map. No, so not Windsor Hills, yeah. but Baldwin. Baldwin, Baldwin Hills. Baldwin Hills, Hills. Yeah. 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 Everybody, well, People of my generation always heard of the Baldwin Hills Dam disaster. Oh, okay. And so you say Bald- you say Windsor Hills, they haven't heard of the Baldwin Hills. Oh, they know that, even though it's just right next to Completely door. unrelated. I just discovered this is something new, and maybe this is yeah. new to everyone else, but the Baldwin Hills Scenic Overlook. Oh, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Have you, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah, amazing up there. That's very close to, to where yeah, we are. Yeah, it's, it's if anyone's been there, it's a, the coolest yeah. thing of going up there, just the whole view of L.A. that I've never seen before, and I've been here for 20-something years. It's yeah, it is, an, it is a cool spot to have that hill kind of right where you can really see sort of all of the L.A. Basin. Yeah, that's great. It's amazing. Yeah. So you grew up, you grew up so in that So I grew up area. there until age 12, then we moved to Newport Beach. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And so I consider uh, really Newport Beach to be my hometown because I went to junior high and high school there. Where'd you go to high school? Coron Del Mar High School. Oh, you're a Sea King. Yeah, I'm a Sea King. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I went to Woodbridge High School, so okay. I, I played water polo against CDM, oh. always lost horribly. Yeah, was, <laughs> that's one thing. That's, Football, that's, eh, but... Water polo, we were taught. Well, yeah, you guys had the Olympic coach, so we were going up against the Olympic coach. Yeah. I mean, the men's Olympic coach is coaching high school water polo down the street, oh and you're God. like, it, yeah. it's not the. It's hard to compete <laughs> against. Them. Yeah, yeah, I know. Just in my year, we sent several all-American uh, water polo players off to college on full scholarship. Wow. Yeah, this is a factory. And my parents were saying, "Well, how come you can get a full scholarship? Uh, because I can, you know, can't, you know, I don't have." you know, muscles like they do. Oh, they're, they're, they're big guys. Yeah. <laughs> they're big guys. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, complete yeah. tangent. Okay. So uh, so I kind of already decided to go to UC Irvine, in part because my parents had, not that they were pushing me, but they had kind of, in part they moved actually to Newport Beach because, okay, here's a school, a university you can go to. Yeah, so it's right my, there. My older brother had gone there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I was kind of interested. I really wanted to do chemical engineering, but they didn't have chemical engineering at UCI. So it was kind of either choice between mechanical engineering or um, or chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I kind of decided, you know, I was interested in cars and things like that. So uh, so I decided, well, mechanical engineering seems a little more practical, so maybe I'll 
go that route. And mm-hmm. in hindsight, I think it was the right choice for me. Mm-hmm. Not saying there's things wrong in chemistry, but I think that sure. mechanical engineering yeah. uh, was the right choice for me. Yeah. Anyway, so like I said, they went through. As a, now we're going back to my days as a PhD student, seeing a, uh, I wanted to be involved in space research. Is that MIT? This is at MIT. Uh-huh. And I already here's a subject combustion that I already knew a fair amount about. Mm-hmm. So I proposed this to my advisor, and he was a brilliant guy. He knew everything about everything except you know thermal sciences. So he was kind of you know ho-hum about it because he just it wasn't a field he was familiar with. But then just by coincidence, he was going like the next week down to uh, Washington, D.C. to meet with his uh, contract monitor. And he mentioned them on the list of things that they were doing. Okay, we're doing A, B, C, D, and E. Oh, and we're thinking about doing some work on combustion low gravity. Oh, yeah, we need more of that. That's really good stuff because oh, cool. of fire safety and spacecraft. Yeah. So the, the next week he came back, hey, Paul, how's the project going? <laughs> very excited and interested yeah. in your work. And all of a sudden he was very interested in the work. <laughs> and so I wrote a proposal. Again, this is – nowadays this seems very unusual, but at the time it just seemed perfectly standard because all the senior uh, graduate students were doing the same. They were writing proposals mm-hmm. that you know their advisor would you know sort of clean up and put his name on it because obviously – Graduate students can't be principal investigators, only faculty can be. And not to say he was trying to take credit for sure. that, but, um, you know, so everything went through the proper chain of command. Um, he would clean it up and put his name on it, and then mm-hmm. a lot of these proposals got funded. So I felt like I had to write a proposal and get it funded, which, you know, that happened. So I'd only been at MIT for about a year when I had, I was sort of operating in assistant professor mode. I mean, I had my own grant, yeah. and they really couldn't flunk me out on generals because otherwise they'd lose the grant. Yeah, there's no yeah. one else really. There was no one else in the lab who was doing anything vaguely. You're like a valuable asset. Yeah, I became. <laughs> I made myself a valuable asset. Um, it wasn't, you know, in hindsight, it was a great s- scheme. Had you known that you were I doing it, had I known that I was doing it at the time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Very cool. And then, then we found some things that were, uh, that were very unexpected to say the least in that and so I wrote this up and um, and I thought I'd written a masterpiece I gave it to my advisor for him to proofread and it came back marked up solid red and I realized I wasn't oh. as good a writer as I thought I was but okay but he was right so uh, anyway so then we sent it out and it got you know accepted for publication and then I really wanted to continue it I just I thought well let me do like one you know, one or two more years just to sort of finish this out. Okay, and then I was, because I was planning on going off into industry somewhere. Because, you know, growing up in Southern California, you knew a lot about the aerospace industry. A lot of my friends had gone into the aerospace industry, so I thought that's what I was going to do too. But then as a postdoc, at some point I realized, you know, I really like the research part. Mm. And... So where, I said, where are the researchers whose work I respect the most, whose papers I've read the most and I've cited the most in my own work? Well, it's almost all of them, they weren't in industry positions. They weren't in government lab positions. Yeah. They are most all people in faculty positions. So up to that point, I had thought, you know, I was never going to, once I got out of school, I was never going to set foot, you know, in the classroom on either side of the yeah. blackboard, so mm-hmm. to speak. But I realized, hmm, well, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so then I started looking around for um, for faculty positions. And, you know, I actually sent a lot of applications. And surprisingly, 
There are a number of places that I applied to, just for example, uh, University of Colorado, University of Utah, mm-hmm. um, UC Davis, UC Irvine. Didn't get any interest there, no interview or anything. Places I did get interviews are places like Texas, Stanford, uh, well, MIT, where I've been a student, and Princeton. You know, I thought that was kind of odd that those places would yeah. at least accept me for interviews and the other places yeah. didn't. And actually, the only place I got an offer from was from Princeton, which in the field of combustion was actually the number one school at the time. So as I said, you know, at that time, Brooke Shields was a student there. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was a very young man there, so I told everybody. <laughs> it's like every woman in the country said no to me, but then Brooke Shields said yes. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> That works out well. Yeah. Um, and I, I did see her once or twice crossing campus. Oh, really? But, uh, anyway, so um, so I was at uh, the faculty at Princeton for mm-hmm. seven years. And my relationship with Princeton was, let's just say, suboptimal. Okay. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, I had met and married a California girl. And so I had a personal problem and a professional problem and uh, I had a couple of offers one was a a tenure track but not tenured position at Brown Mm -hmm. University and the other was actually a non-tenure track just a research faculty position here at USC Hmm. so at first I thought well how can I how can I uh, not take the Brown position professionally speaking it was a better position uh, but they said, well, they would not evaluate me for tenure for four years, even though I'd been an assistant professor for seven years already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, it wasn't the best, but, you know, but the USC position since was not even as good as that. But I thought, at least this will solve my personal problem. Yeah. Now, my wife was willing to move, you know, to, to Rhode Island, but it clearly was not her first choice. She grew up in California as well. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, the first three years we knew each other, including the first year we were married, I was still in Princeton. She was still in uh, Los Angeles area. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I decided, well, if I come here, because it's not a permanent position, I can still shop around, send out my resume, look around for something, yeah. a permanent position. Have a staging and area. And it will solve, yeah, it's yeah. a staging ground. And, uh, uh, and then it solves my personal problem. So, actually, I'd only been here about, Four months before the department chair, who at the time was Larry Redekop, yeah. uh, came into my office and said they wanted to evaluate me, not just for a tenure track position, but for a tenured position. Hmm. I guess, you know, because I said I can do X, Y, and Z if I come here. And I didn't really expect anything to happen, you know, on in terms of getting a permanent position, even a tenure track position, until I had an offer from somewhere else. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, to USC's credit, they saw that I could do what I said I could do, and they they actually offered me a, like I say, a tenured position. So hmm. within a year of coming to USC, I not only solved my personal problem, but my professional problem as well. That's yeah. great. So, uh, and hopefully I haven't disappointed USC in the uh, <laughs> 23 years that I've had a tenured position here. You'd think by now someone would have told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm able to uh, 
guess I'm able to hide it. Well, <laughs> you can fool all the people. What is it? Well, some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time. The, one of the two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now, so you've been in the aerospace mechanical engineering department, and... Yeah, let me, let me add one thing. Sure, please, yeah. So I'd been, as you pointed, associated with five different universities, four as a student and one as a faculty member. Right, yeah. Um, and when I first came here, one of the things I heard a lot about was this thing called the Trojan family, Trojan spirit, and all that. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I've been at five other universities where there really wasn't much or any of that. Mm-hmm. And so when I came here and they started talking about the Trojan spirit, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> but I quickly learned that, you know, that was actually true here. And it was kind of nice to be part of, you know, an organization that really did have that sort of spirit. I didn't think it was anything meaningful to me until I found a place that had it, and then it started taking on some meaning really draws you in. <laughs> it does. Yeah, and that's, fa- that's one thing when I ask, you know, incoming freshmen, because I teach the freshman yeah. oh, intro yeah. to mechanical engineering course, I ask them, well, you know, what, what drew you here? I'm sure you had other good offers. What made you mm-hmm. uh, accept USC's offers? And, and one way or another, most of them say, you know, the feeling of, you know, a family or the mm-hmm. Trojan spirit or the fact that as soon as they came in for their first visit, the marching band was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that marching band is responsible, I think, for about half of our tuition. Right? I, I, I bet, I bet, I bet. And I'm sure that they'll claim that responsibility yeah. as well, and rightfully so. I hope they're well paid. <laughs> so I'm curious from a faculty perspective. I mean, we hear it all the time from students that that because it definitely is true, the Trojan family and the idea of spirit and camaraderie. But I'm interested from the faculty perspective of, you know, you've been at all these institutions. I think it makes sense to me from a student perspective of why that's important. Mm-hmm. Why did that end up being important to you, or what kind of effect did it have on you as a faculty member? Because you said right away, you're like, oh, well, I've noticed this is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, at Princeton, when I'd accomplished something, at the Princeton, it was a very cutthroat uh, oh. environment. Yeah. And, you know, I'd accomplished something. I'd you know, get a big grant, win an award or something. And the other faculty would kind of look at me and, and sort of think, well, how come you got that and I didn't? Like, who did you sleep with? I mean, almost oh, literally. Wow. Wow. And it's like when I came to USC and I accomplished something, you know, some faculty member was slapping the back and say, hey, Paul, good job, keep it up. And my first reaction was, what's his angle? <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So it took, it took a while for that to rub off is that, you know, that it, we're kind of all in this together and if you accomplish something – it actually reflects a little yeah. bit. It reflects on me well, too, to a much smaller extent, right. of course. We're all, look, let's face it, none of us here were hired, the faculty at least, none of us were hired because we were good team players. You know, we were all hired because we were considered to be outstanding individuals. But nevertheless, within point. this environment of individuals, you know, if one individual on the, on the team accomplishes something special, it kind of makes us all look a little better. Yeah. So at uh, these other institutions, uh, that that lack of camaraderie almost was a level of competitiveness that even yeah. made. I'm just referring to Princeton in because general. that's the only okay. one I saw from the professional from the side. professional side. Yeah, from the the personal side. I mean, like amongst the universities that I went to, I kind of liked MIT because, and maybe it's because I was in an aeronautics and astronautics department, so it was much more focused on aerospace that's your, problems. That's your doctorate program. That's correct? my doctorate okay. program. Yeah. 
And I like that because, you know, I go to a seminar, let's say, on control of large space structures, and even though I don't really know anything about that, I could kind of see, oh, yeah, they have some propulsion issues and things like things I know yeah. something about. So it was kind of, there was a little bit of that sort of camaraderie, at least sort of at the technical level of, yeah, okay, we're all right. working on similar or related right. problems. Mm-hmm. Huh. So given that, and I, I you had mentioned your, your freshman class, and I definitely want to get into that in a minute, but given that you know, a lot of our audience are, is prospective students. You just name schools that they're all looking at mm-hmm. and they're all great schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your insight as being uh, someone that has taken up residence at these institutions and experienced them and mm-hmm. been here? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you tell to a prospective student? Not, not, not that they have to choose one or the other, but what are the differences between these places? Hey, y'all, sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to let you know that we have a number of campus visit programs available to you right now. If you want to check out what campus is like, if you want to learn more about the Viterbi School of Engineering, go to viterbi.link slash visit. That's V-I-T-E-R-B-I dot link slash visit, where you can learn about our Viterbi visit experiences that happen on most Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We have some virtual events that happen on occasional weekdays and occasional Saturdays. Plus, we have some transfer virtual admission sessions where you can learn all about how to get those courses ready for transferring. We want to meet you. We will have lots of opportunities to do it and it's happening all summer long but get your registration in now at viterbi.link visit hope to see you soon well there's of course the you know feeling of spirit now granted sure. my experience as a student was a couple of years ago sure so, very different places that's a good so point could that's be good. yeah quite different nowadays so uh but it, it seems to me because like you know my older sister and, uh, you know, well, I should say my older sister's husband, um, you know, was a USC, not not an engineering graduate, but he was oh. a USC grad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even in him, I see the, uh, that feeling of Trojan family, Trojan spirit there. So it's, I think it's something that's been around for a long time and presumably will be around for a long time right. uh, to come. And... Above and beyond that, what what I like about, and students have asked me this, what do I like about being a faculty member here? I always ask the students, you know, so with the spirit of the flipped classroom, Mm -hmm. then they ask me, well, what do I like about being here as a faculty member? Um, In addition to what I already mentioned, I also like the fact that that USC, there's really the, the administration. I know everybody in every organization usually criticizes their management, their administration. I actually happen to think USC has really good administration. I don't necessarily agree with everything they do, sure. but overall, they're very successful. They're very proactive. I guess if I'd use one word, they're very proactive, very aggressive, uh, go after targets of opportunity, whether that be uh, faculty, whether that be students, whether that be yeah. resources, you know, like donors, or, and, build, and, and doing something useful with it, like, well, University Village, of course, is the the current yeah. shining star. Yeah, amongst that. But even before that, there are a lot of things that you could see that that uh, they've done well, like this building we're in right yeah, now. Yeah, you, you can go back every couple of years as a new. Yeah. Sh- that's that's. I guess it's embedded into your answer. The current shining star. You know that it's going to be surpassed by something else right. in the near future. Like we just know that's the case. Like it's it's cool and new now because something yeah. cool and new is going to be there right, right. afterward. Right. It's, I, I think it's going to be a little bit harder to top University Village. <laughs> that's going to be hard to top. But. You know, uh, 
Uh, my, my dad actually graduated from USC as well. He did his PhD in electrical engineering here from Viterbi. And when I was looking at colleges and we were walking around USC, he had worked in some of these buildings before in the School of Engineering, and he didn't even recognize half the school. It was absolutely nuts. And I took him around the village just about two weeks ago. He came to visit, and he was just blown away. It's absolutely crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah nice. It's, it's quite a, even in the time that I've been here, you know, it's just, it's, it's like mm-hmm. a night and day difference. Yeah. yeah, I think one of my, I, I say that a lot to, to people that that ask me this question, like, why do you why do you like it there or anything else? And I think I always boil it down to one answer, which I think was part of your answer. There's this sense of, like, no one's ever happy with what we're doing. And I mean that in the most positive way. Mm-hmm. It, there's no resting on our laurels. It's mm-hmm. this idea of, like, well, whatever we did, you mentioned talent with faculty or talent mm-hmm. with students or even fundraising, but... Um, I, I tend to focus it on more of the, the human aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So that everyone's trying to say, okay, cool, what did we do? Yeah. Okay, how can we do this a little bit better next time around? Yeah. And I, I see that at all levels. Well, and to turn things around back at you and your team, just look at all the recruiting, all the work that you do, not to get more students, because you're basically no. capped. Yeah. It's to get the best students you possibly yeah. can to bring your the quality of, you know, of people that I teach well, we try. up to the high We try, but you're the, you're the one that can tell us. So your freshman class this year, is it, is, is it good? Do you like them? Yeah, that's a great. You know, the, I'm putting you on the, the spot, I realize. I realize, I'm like, I don't know the answer to this question. I really hope it's good. <laughs> the neatest thing, actually, about the uh, this freshman class is that it's virtually 50% female. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, technically. In fact, yeah. my, my research lab, for the first time ever, is more than 50% female. Wow. And it wasn't because I, you know, intentionally did that. It just organically, it just happened. That's what happened with your app, with yeah. the people interested. That's mm-hmm. great. So your your actual class is almost fifty fifty. Yeah, I haven't actually done the numbers on it, but just looking around, I can see that it is. And I know that's awesome. Fact that my research uh, lab is more than fifty percent. That's fantastic. That yeah, our official number. I don't know if you've heard, but our official number is forty four percent female okay. in the incoming class. So okay, I, I knew it was somewhere. We're, we're getting close, but I'm glad that even just from the uh, anecdotal of like yeah. looking at your class, that's what you saw. And this is your introduction to mechanical engineering class. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about that? What happens in Introduction to Mechanical Engineering? Sure. Well, as I tell the students, like I just met one student, a female student uh, mm-hmm. today, uh, she's not sure if she either wants to be in mechanical engineering yeah. or if she wants to be in engineering at all. Mm-hmm. And as I told her, as I'd said on the first day of class, my goal, if this is not a weed-out class, <laughs> but nor is it a weed-in class. <laughs> I'm not necessarily trying to keep you here if this isn't where you belong. Right. I want to give you the best possible experience in engineering so you can make a realistic choice as yeah. to whether you want to stay in engineering, right. you want to stay in mechanical engineering, you want to go into a different branch of engineering, mm-hmm. or you, you want to go into another school. Yeah. And so I- within the course, <clears throat> what I do, there's three components to it. One component is sort of the uh, lecture part of the course, where I go over first some sort of, I call it engineering boot camp. Mm-hmm. And the main thing I focus on there is units. Now, units to the uninitiated, you say, what do I mean by units? Is that like converting between feet and meters? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tiny part of it, but it's a lot more than that. Like, for example, if you look, if you go to Home Depot and you say, well, uh, this insulation, this building, ins- home insulation, the, it's uh, so many BTUs per hour per square foot per degree Fahrenheit per inch. Yeah. And you look at that, and what kind of blankety-blank unit is yeah. that? Yeah. And so I teach them how to convert that into something sensible. Okay. Yeah. 
you know, and it's not just as simple as you can't just look up, you know, some conversion factor online. There's a lot more to it than that. And also, if in scrutinizing your work, scrutinize your formulas. Let's suppose you came up with a formula, and the answer you came up with was three meters plus seven seconds. You say, wait a minute, how do I add three meters in seven seconds? What if I had three meters and seven feet? Well, I can add three meters and seven feet. I convert the meters to feet or the feet to meters yeah. and add them. But if I have an answer that is three meters plus seven, uh, yes, three meters plus seven seconds, I can't add them. I must. Yeah. I must. I know for sure that my answer is wrong because I can't add two things that have different units. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I go through a lot of that in in terms of how can I minimize the chances that my answer has any mistakes in it. You can never be 100% sure, but at least I give them sort of a, a system of checks to see if it passes this. I call them, by um, analogy with what I did as a graduate student, building electronics. So the first step in building electronics, okay, you have a schematic, you wire it up, you plug it in, you flip the switch on, you see if it smokes. <laughs> right, I was doing combustion experiments, but it wasn't the electronics that was supposed to smoke. And so if, if it failed the smoke test, I knew there was something wrong. Okay. So that's checking your units. Yeah. Now, in, then the next step is what I call the function test. Okay, you flip the switch on and it doesn't smoke, but does it do what you expect it to do? That is, when you push the green button, then the bell rings, or you, or you yeah. turn the knob to the right and the red light comes on or something right. like that, if that's what you expected it to do. Expect and result. then you see what your formula does. It do what you expect it to do. When x goes to 0 or x goes to infinity or when you know x equals y, does it have the expected behavior? And if it doesn't, then you know there's either something wrong with the formula or maybe there's something wrong with your understanding yeah. of it. Then, as I say, that's sort of where the science ends and the art begins because now it depends on your judgment, how much you know about this and whether or not you're going to trust the analysis that you did or your intuition as to what is involved with this problem. Yeah. And then the third level is what I call the performance test. That is in the electronics, how fast or how accurate is my instrument. And in the case of the, the analysis, it's how accurate is my formula. Mm-hmm. But then how do I decide that? Well, I have to compare it to something else that I trust, operative word being that I trust. Right. So either somebody else's analysis or some computation, some more detailed you know, uh, analysis. But again, it is, the operative word is, do I trust this at least as much as I trust my own work here? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one part of the course. So first, those that sort of engineering tools or engineering boot camp as I call it and then uh, the other part of the lecture part of the course is going through little snippets of several of the key engineering courses they'll take later on Uh, statics strength of materials um, fluid mechanics uh, heat transfer thermal and energy systems and I give them little sort of two week snippets of that just covering one thing I don't do in this course is I don't derive stuff. Uh-huh. I sort of, here's the formula, here's what all the symbols mean, here's why it makes sense that as, you know, temperature goes up, this, you know, the heat transfer should go up, or when these two temperatures are equal, the heat transfer should be zero, because there's this insidious thing called the second law of thermodynamics, which <laughs> says that it, that has to be the case. <laughs> yeah, so I give them these little, and the idea is to give them sort of like um, Dean Yortzis always talks about this 30,000 foot view of engineering. So this is my 30,000 foot view of these individual subjects. Just maybe maybe two weeks for a course that you'll 
have a whole 15-week course on later on in your uh, academic career here. And, you know, when you're taking that 15-week course, it's easy to get lost, you know, not to see the forest through the trees. Here mm-hmm. I'm trying to make sure you're looking down from 30,000 feet so you can see the whole forest. Yeah. And so hopefully when you do take the detailed you know, in-depth course on that subject, maybe it'll seem a little bit less mysterious. It's like and a the students of may not like, yeah, the students may not necessarily like the course when they take it, but they come back to me a couple of years later and say, oh, you know that course, you know, the 101, now when I'm taking Amy 331 or something, yeah, it's really a lot easier because now I had that, I feel I'm, I'm an advantage compared to my students who didn't take that course. At least that's what they say just before they ask me for a letter of recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) But, hey, I'll take it. It's working. It it looks like a line drive in the box score. (laughs) They like to say, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So, I mean, can you – I'm sorry, go ahead. Please, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, so that's one one part of the course. Mm -hmm. The other two parts of the course, one is where they learn – it's a laboratory, Uh but where they learn SOLIDWORKS. Got it. Which is, you know, an industry tool that they're going to need – Pretty much any engineering field, uh, they, they need to learn computer-aided design. Absolutely. Okay. And then the third part are these little projects. I do two projects. For the past few years, it's been one where they, and they work in small groups, which, of course, is a whole new dynamic that they're going to have to learn anyway, because rarely do engineers work in, uh, except in groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one project is building these little robotic cars that have to compete for possession of the top of this ramp we call the King of the Hill project. Nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that's kind of a gee whiz thing. Let's just build this because it ha- it occurs relatively early in the semester, so they don't have a lot of engineering tools at their disposal yet. So it's more or less just kind of a let's try this and try that and see what happens. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. Start playing around. Yes, playing around because engineering, you know, is. Yeah. I just, in fact, one of the things they have to do before they can, uh, before they can um, go into the uh, our labs and build stuff, they have to do some safety training. Yeah. And so I'm helping them with their training. They have to learn how to use a saw, a, a band saw, a, a drill, uh, a, a belt sander, and, and how to solder things. Mm. Like just the other day, once I was uh, manning the soldering station, and I showed this uh, this one student, you know, how to solder, and yeah. she was so excited. She said, "That's so cool! I feel like an engineer now." <laughs> <laughs> I swear, that made my day. I swear, oh. you know, if she wasn't a student, I would have given her a hug right then. <laughs> okay, so um, so there's that part of the course. And then the second project, which by, is near the end of the semester, is to build a bridge out of spaghetti and white glue and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and by then they've learned some how to use SolidWorks, not just to draw a picture of their bridge, but to actually test it. Just mm-hmm. its strength, mm-hmm. so they can actually. And I'm, I've been very, very impressed with how quickly they can pick up on that aspect. It started a few years ago that they did that spontaneously. I didn't say, "Hey, use the SolidWorks to, you know, test the strength of your bridge right. and decide where to put more material and where you can remove material." Yeah. They figured that out. Then I kind of sort of started making that an integral right. part of that. And like I say, even though they're just fr- first semester freshmen, they're they're able to do that. And one of the things I like to Dis, or instill in them is you know not just this engineering knowledge but also pride of ownership yeah. in their knowledge yeah. to be able to say at the end of the semester hey I can do this stuff you know that I had no clue that I would have been able to do a semester ago
Hey everyone, this is Paul. Sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to let you know about a new feature we just unlocked. It's about sending us questions or comments via text. If you go to your podcast player, check the show notes. There's a link there that says, send us a question or comment. It may be on our next episode. So go in there, send us a little quick text message. Let us know what your questions are. Let us know what your comments are. We'd love to hear from you. So we can't wait to see it. Now back to the episode. That's great. And so when people hear spaghetti bridge, they, they often think, well, that's like a high school physics thing. But you're t- like, but th- your point is that it's, it's, it's incorporating, maybe it's doing something that may be familiar, sometimes a little mm-hmm. bit fun, mm-hmm. not necessarily hardcore academic, but incorporating these other elements like SolidWorks into it where you're starting to understand your, your predictive analysis or where well, you're right. Yeah, that's the point is, you know, because after all, that's where, that's what engineering is, yeah. is, you know, is using predictive tools to come up with the best design. And the basically the contest rules are you have to span a 25-inch gap with your spaghetti bridge, mm-hmm. and your bridge can weigh no more than um, half a... I have to think, is it half a pound or is it one pound? Um, half a pound. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they have to decide where to put their material. Mm. You know, again, the key point is anybody can make a bridge that's stronger by using more material. Yeah. But the point here is, given that weight limit of the bridge itself, how can they, um, how can they hold the most weight? And so, anytime you know you want to make one part stronger, that means you have to take material away from someplace else and make yeah. it weaker. If you did it, the ideal bridge would fail everywhere at the same time and fail spectacularly in the process. <laughs> <laughs> so, the idea of of introducing them to mechanical engineering is that idea of a kind of a survey course, some mm-hmm. of this preview of things of, of mm-hmm. what's to come. Yeah, it's kind of, I, I say also, it's sort of like a roadmap yeah. of what's yeah. going to happen over the next three Absolutely. and a half years. Yeah, here's where you're going, and you can see where that's happening. Can you, can you provide, I don't know if there is an answer to this, but to a question that someone would ask, which is, well, what is mechanical engineering? Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that is, is a broad, it's a yeah. broad discipline. Right. And every course, you have to start out with whatever the title of the course is, what is blank? Blank. Or what the is blank, blank is course? The name of the course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. And what I say is that if uh, if it doesn't involve things that fly, in which case an aerospace engineer will handle it, if it doesn't involve life forms, in which case a biological or biomedical engineer will handle it, if it doesn't involve chemical reactions, in which case a chemical engineer will do it, if it doesn't involve... Uh, electronics, in which case an electrical or computer engineer will do it, and if it doesn't involve uh, materials, in which case a materials engineer will do it, then a mechanical engineer will do it. Oh, and by the way, if it does involve, you know, things that fly or things <laughs> that live say, yeah. or chemical reactions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then a mechanical engineer will probably be involved too. Yeah. yeah. So as I say, mechanical engineering is the broadest engineering discipline. Now, every instructor in every engineering discipline will say that about their discipline. Sure. But in mechanical en- the case of mechanical engineering, it happens to be true. Of course, everyone says it, but when I say it, it's very true. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. biomedical is pretty broad, yeah. too. But, but, the, but the, I, I give some examples of that. For example, all engineered systems have issues with heat transfer. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pay attention to those issues, they will come back to bite you. Yeah. So just even electronics, say, well, electronics, not heat transfer, but how do you keep your chips cool? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, believe me, if, <laughs> if, if your chips overheat, that will come back to bite you in a big way. Yeah. And even this building, you know, you, there's this whole heating, ventilation, air conditioning system 
that we need to keep, you know, to keep ourselves comfortable and keep us from suffocating. So, and I could go on and on about, you know, True. automobiles. Think of all the places where heat transfer uh, yeah. is involved in that. Now, heat transfer, I have to admit, is kind of a dry subject, but it's a really important one. And I tell students that the way you make yourself valuable in any group is to be flexible and adaptable. So let's say if you're hired to do structural mechanics or something, but you're, on your first day in the job, and this inevitably happens, your first day on the job, you know, your boss comes in and says, look, I know we hired you to do the, the structural mechanics, but, you know, our biggest customer just called and our biggest selling product is overheating. Do you know anything about heat transfer? Can you help us out? And if you can say, well, yeah, I had a couple courses on that. Uh, mm-hmm. let, let me take a look at it. And if you can solve their problem, then you just became much more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of, I think, where mechanical engineers comes in. And I also like to point out five things that have happened to mechanical engineering just in the past 20 years or so mm-hmm. that have really just changed the field completely. Let's see if I can remember all five. <laughs> what was that politician who had three things that he oh, yeah. remembered? Oh, yeah. Rick Perry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you three things. I was going to say, you just went out there and said you're going to give us five. Yeah. So let's, let's see. Oh, boy. The pressure's on now. Does that mean I'll lose the election? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So one thing is, um, is computer-aided design, mm-hmm. as I mentioned already. Uh, that is the way that, we, the way that we design things now. I think people, if they have any conception of what mechanical engineers do, people that aren't engineers, what their conception is, uh, is that we sit in front of a, a, a big drafting board and draw out things. Right. right? We spend all day doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, nobody does drafting. Some people do a lot of computer-aided drafting. But in any case, when you have an idea, the first thing you do is you uh, visualize the idea and then you draw it out in SOLIDWORKS. Okay, so that's one the computer you design. The next thing you do is before you even cut any material, that you um, you test it virtually using some sort of uh, analysis tool, whether it be structural mechanics or fluid mechanics or you know chemical reactions. We we have all sorts of uh, software power electromagnetics. We have all sorts of software packages that simulate these things. Yeah. So we simulate it virtually. And once we have something that performs as we think it was, well, we know that what happens in reality won't be exactly what happens according to simulations, Mm -hmm. but at least we have a good start. So then we build it. But we don't just, and so that's the second thing with simulation. The third thing is is how we build things. In the past, you would start with a block of material and start drilling and, and milling. Nowadays, we start with nothing and we build it up using some sort of 3D printing or solid freeform fabrication. It comes by many different names. But the thing is, this allows us to, A, build things that we couldn't even conceive of building before. And it also gives us a way without having to send it out to a shop and the shop having to decide, well, how can I drill through here until or how can I hang this when I haven't built this part yet? Okay. So that's the third thing is, um, is 3D printing or... What do you want to call it? Uh, the fourth thing that was is sort of what I've been alluding to is is collaboration. Mm. That is collaboration with uh, with other engineering disciplines. Mm-hmm. I think you know it used to be that a mechanical engineer would sort of get a problem and say, "Okay, we need a gearbox that does this." So that the boss would throw the problem over the wall at the mechanical engineers, yeah. Yeah. and uh, then 
the mechanical engines work on it, and then a month later they would throw the answer back. work in silos, right? Yeah, Yeah. work in silos, yeah. But, of course, now it has to be, you know, it's very much integrated and coordinated. Okay, now what's the fifth one? Uh, (laughs) We knew knew this was coming. Yeah, let's see. So I've got, I'm trying to, in my mind, I'm trying to visualize what's in my lecture notes, because I do mention this uh, right in my lecture notes. Uh, Let's see. Fifth thing that's different... Now that the pressure is on, I'm going to draw a blank. Hey, but at we, least we, I got four out of five. You got four out of five. We can yeah. come back to it if you yeah, hit it later. Okay. <laughs> or or I could pull up my lecture notes because they're all posted online. If you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. I mean, While we're, we're talking, I'll, I'll we, could, like, we could switch gears slightly. Um, yeah. I think a lot of let people... Me, let me also say one other sure. thing uh, about students nowadays compared to when I first started mm-hmm. uh, uh, teaching, well, 31 years ago. Wow. My first academic position. That... I think students nowadays, and I think it's not just, you know, here. I think it's pretty much universally true. They're, I think, they're more well-rounded. You know, they can write better. They're more interested in things like community service. And, uh, and, you know, they're more eloquent. And maybe they have better, you know, somewhat better analytical skills. The place that they're not really as good, though, nowadays is in sort of, I'll, I'll be honest, common sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, for example, and I think the reason for this is that I think about my high school and formative <laughs> experience. Mm-hmm. What did we do? We all had hand-me-down cars from our parents, and they broke down a lot. Yeah. So we got pretty good at fixing our cars. Yeah. Yeah. And at diagnosing what was wrong with oh. them, and we spent a lot of time fixing them. We had a problem solving figuring the car. out stuff, yeah. out stuff for ourselves. Nowadays. Uh, not so much. Mm-hmm. That is, cars are a lot harder to work on because everything is computer controlled, yeah. and because of the emissions regulations, well, things like that, you can't. You go. You go back to the 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 five things you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. It's, that's the reason why. Because you've got this idea. You got advanced technology. That means you don't have to go in and go mm-hmm. through this yeah. problem solving. Yeah. Like, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. Well, let's try this. It's like, mm-hmm. well, let's just hook it up and find out what's wrong right. with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And so we got so good. You know, at doing that, then even when nobody's car was broken, we'd start sabotaging each other's cars. Not with the goal of trying to destroy the car, but to do something that was very, very difficult to diagnose, yeah. but very easy to fix once you figured out what was wrong. Right. Kind of like a game. It was a game. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> That's so interesting. Because nothing is more annoying, yeah. you know, than than having a hot date on Saturday night. You're a car guy? I, I'm not. Somewhat of a car guy. Okay. I'm not. I'm not a super expert. I will say though that I'm the closest thing USC has to a an engine expert. Okay. And there's really there really isn't anybody at UCLA or Caltech or UCI or places like that that's really really an engine expert. Right. Yeah. So I kind of become a bit of a de facto expert for the Southern California area. And I would never consider myself to be an engine expert compared to some of my colleagues at, let's say, Michigan or places sure. like that. But basically any crockpot inventor in Southern California <laughs> who has some idea about an engine that runs on water or something like right. that, you know, eventually they start calling around and eventually they sort of get funneled to me. To you. Yeah. So you I listen for a couple of minutes and realize <laughs> they're not even, they're not, they're skipping over the second law of thermodynamics. They're going to the first law of thermodynamics and violating that one as well. So I listen for a couple of minutes and then I'll say, 
Well, you know, I don't know too much about that. Uh, why don't you call UCLA? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I don't tell them who to call at UCLA because they're, they're, they're friends of mine, and I want them to remain my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're, but your research is—I is, mean, you—you you, you started as a kid blowing things up, and you, mm-hmm. you've taken that all the way through. Your research is still basically based on combustion, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, are you—are you focused now on the softball? Is it softball or? Um, well, that's one of the experiments. One the experiment? structure of flame balls at low Lewis number, which has the judicious I just, I love, acronym, I love the acronym. Ball, a softball. Um, yeah, no, I'm not working on that anymore because okay. NASA's funding for microgravity, mm-hmm. we used to call it zero gravity mm-hmm. until we acknowledge it's not exactly zero, yeah. but microgravity research more or less dried up about the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. There is, it is coming back a little bit, and I might get involved in it again, we'll see. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I was involved in microgravity for 25 years <laughs> As a, first as a graduate student, yeah. uh, then as a postdoc, and then as a faculty member. So it's almost like maybe even if I did have the opportunity, I might say, you know, that would be like going back to moving with my parents again. <laughs> You've been there, done that. Been there, yeah. It's time, yeah. time to move on. So one of the things that I work on a lot nowadays is trying to produce devices that generate electricity but not using lithium ions as the energy source, but using fuels as the energy source. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that that I ask students is, the way that I start this discussion is, say I'll have a group of people and I'll look for some foreigners and say, so you you foreigners, uh, uh, what country are you from? So from India or China or someplace like that. And say, how did you get here? Did you fly? So yeah, I flew here. So did you fly in a battery-powered airplane? No. And what was the energy source for the aircraft? Mm-hmm. Well, it was fuel. Right. And I say, do you have a cell phone? So, well, of course I have a cell phone. And I say, does that have fuel in it? And they say, well, no, it has a battery. Well, wait a minute. Why, why didn't you use a battery-powered airplane? Why? They said, well, the, the batteries are too heavy yeah. you know, for a given amount of energy storage. And they say, well, then, but what about, you just told me that fuels have much more energy per kilogram than batteries so how come your phone doesn't have fuel in it? Mm-hmm. You know. So in other words, the same thing we do everywhere in the world every day, that is we convert fuel to useful work in the form of shaft work or to, to drive a car mm-hmm. or in the form of electrical work to drive your cell phone. How come we're not doing that at this scale? Yeah. Say, well, people have actually tried to, take, to build very tiny internal combustion engines, mm-hmm. and they don't work. It just doesn't scale that way. Just like you can't have a fly the size of a human or a human the size of a fly. Things just don't scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're not trying to build, even though uh, Berkeley spent quite a few years trying to do just build a very small Wankel, I don't know, like the Wankel engine that's used in a Mazda, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. some Mazda sports cars. Mm -hmm. Um, They tried to build very small Wankel engine, and you know they did some great work. To the credit, they did some great work, but they never produced, you know, a, an operating prototype because right. it just doesn't scale well. MIT, my alma mater, my own department, mm-hmm. spent many years trying to build a micro gas turbine. Yeah, hmm. you know, just a few millimeters in scale. Again, did some fantastic work, but never got a working device because it just things just don't scale well. Yeah. So I mean, anybody can complain. What can I recommend that might be better? Right. Uh, and so we're trying to use different approaches, using either thermoelectric materials for those mm-hmm. of you that know what those are, or different types of fuel cells. Yeah. Uh, 
to convert fuel into uh, uh, into electricity. So, which I think are much more promising, because now I don't have all these moving parts. The problem is, moving parts are okay at large scales. Mm-hmm. Be- basically, getting a little bit technical here, Please. but but the the amount of power you can produce scales like the volume yeah. of your let's just say of your cylinder in an uh, internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm. However, the losses, the heat losses and the friction losses scale with the area. And mm-hmm. so as you get smaller and smaller, the ratio of volume to surface area gets smaller and smaller yep. and it becomes harder and harder to have enough, you know, heat release and useful work resulting from that heat release mm-hmm. so that your heat generation will overcome your heat losses and your power generated will overcome the power loss due to friction. So that's why we're not we're trying to avoid moving parts at all costs. Yeah. So is the is the answer if do I remember if I remember correctly is that the Swiss roll combustion? That's one of the things. One of the ideas. Yeah, it's one on. of the ideas, and that's how to even at at small scales, even with no moving parts, you're going to have issues with heat loss and this the Swiss roll, uh, as it's called. By the way, a lot of people seem to think that I invented this Swiss roll. That <laughs> for the purposes of the listeners, it's basically a spiral heat exchanger. Got it. So they, the reactants spiral in, they burn in the middle of the spiral, and then as they spiral out, they transfer heat from the products back to the reactants. And uh, actually it was invented um, uh, in the early 70s by somebody named Felix Weinberg at Imperial mm-hmm. College. Brilliant guy. Uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, but uh, it, it, it was a great idea. I love that. I even mentioned it, in, even though it wasn't directly related to my thesis work, I actually mentioned it. Uh, in my thesis, I recognized it at that time as being a really great idea. Yeah. and But it would sort of lay dormant for a long time because I guess nobody had really a good application for it. Mm. So now it's it's come back not just been repopularized by me, but by a number of others uh, is as a way of doing combustion at small scales yeah. and minimizing the impact of these heat losses. And Felix, I knew him well when he was alive, and I told him, you know, Felix, this is a great idea you have, but if I were your age, I would have thought of it first. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, he has a good sense of British humor, so he remained my friend. So how far away do you think we are of getting rid of lithium-ion batteries or moving on to some sort of uh, microscale combustion? um, It's it's the same thing I say, to be honest, it's the same thing I say about running out of oil. We're 40 years away from running out of oil, and we have been for the last 150 years. Right. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so there's still a lot of technical challenges to, to overcome. And we have a lot of the individual uh, aspects. I think we've found solutions to them. Mm-hmm. It's getting a system, A, getting a system where all the parts work together in, in harmony. So as I can solve the heat transfer problem one way, I can solve the power generation problem another way, I can solve the fuel uh, feeding the reactants in, pumping the reactants in in another way. But now we're trying to get all these things to work together as one, you know, as one Trojan family, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's still, it's still a few years away. That's and cool. then, but then it's, there's also a lot of marketability mm-hmm. issues. It's like one thing, can, is there some way it can be carried on aircraft? for example. Now, you say, if, if you had just invented the lithium-ion battery today, I'm sure that, that no airline would let you bring it on board. Because no. the thing shorts out, it's going to overheat, it's going to cause... Just like all those cars, if you were had just invented the internal combustion engine in the automobile today, and you told me you're going to have all these objects zipping around at 70 miles an hour, yeah. and it's going to use this explosive material 
that has an energy content 100 times per pound that's 100 times more than batteries. Yeah. Uh, and everybody, all, every fool on the street was going to be using this. Yeah. And, and you were going to... Um, and you were going to ignite inside of this steel uh, chamber at at a rate of hundreds of times per second. Mm-hmm. You know, ignite these explosions hundreds of times <laughs> per second, and it was going to produce all of these toxic, you know, byproducts. Uh, no one would ever let you. Know that. <laughs> yeah. So there's the acceptability. Then there's also sort of the uh, business model. I can see two possible business models for this. Let's suppose we come up with a perfect solution yeah. to it. One possibility is that you sell the generators, you know, and then use some common fuel like butane, for example, mm-hmm. as a, a good target fuel, for the same reason we use butane in our big lighters. Yeah. Another possibility is what I call the inkjet printer business model. Yeah. You give away the cartridges, but then your, your generator needs a proprietary fuel, mm-hmm. and you sell the fuel cartridges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, think about an inkjet. They practically give away the inkjet printers, but they yeah. sell. They, it's the Gillette model. They, yeah, the Gillette model. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. it's the Gillette. I mean, uh, yeah. blades. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Huh. Sorry, I'm thinking about so many different things right now. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, you don't need the, the Gillette right now. I know. Right. right at the current <laughs> moment. At the current know, most moment. people actually, I feel, you know, beards don't. I had a beard, you know, some time ago at various stages of my life. Um, most people, I think, look uh, better. Um, you know, just clean shaven. But I think the beard, it looks really good on you. Well, thank you. So the beard has become a hot topic in the last okay. couple of days for the listeners that don't know what we're talking about. I currently have a uh, an attempt at a beard, and it's, for some reason, has come up, like, almost on the hour for, like, like yesterday it was talked about for all day. Uh, and then, um, yeah, it's a big form of debate in my house. My wife wants me to keep it. I don't, it's just not me. It's not natural to me, but I will... Yeah. I don't know. It's a debate. I'm confident people here don't want me to have it. Um, <laughs> and I have this I have this whole choice I need to make that uh, in my head I'm going to decide whether I have it when I go out on the road yeah. or not. So I've got another week to make a decision of what I'm yeah. going to get rid of it or not. But thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Um, it looks very natural. It looks very good on you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it doesn't feel that way to me, but I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Wow, we went from uh, combustion yeah. and <laughs> batteries to beards, uh, which is cool. Um, we've gone almost a whole hour now, which is which is great, and yeah. I, we'll keep it for as long as you want. I, I, there is one thing I'd love to hear about because mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people uh, know this, but you have an experience with NASA, mm-hmm. and and I don't know how how much you'd, you'd want to talk about that or uh, yeah, what sure. the time what that was like in your life. And mm-hmm. yeah, sure. Well, um, one of my experiments. Uh, after a number of years of research doing experiments first in what we call a drop tower, basically drop the experiment to get low gravity, and then on the aircraft flying the low gravity uh, parabolic trajectories, we'd reached a point where we really couldn't go any farther with it until we had a longer duration of low gravity and also a better quality of low gravity than you can get on the aircraft. The aircraft, you know, despite the pilot's best efforts, you know, there's still what we call a G-jitter. The G isn't really yeah. zero. It's kind of hovering around plus or minus point mm-hmm. zero one times mm-hmm. Earth gravity, which really isn't low enough for us. So I proposed this as a space experiment, and it was accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was manifested on a flight that also had three other combustion experiments. Wow. So, uh, so it was decided there would be a combustion specialist on that mission. So... It's the same. My hand, my hand went up. Um, 
blow things up in space. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sounds these like are, a child well, dream. No, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> not blowing things up. These are actually very weak flames. It's somewhat yeah. ironic that what I wind up studying more is actually not the most intense, vigorous, fast-burning combustion, uh-huh. but actually the most meek mm-hmm. combustion mm-hmm. possible. In fact, I claim that the flame balls we burned in space are the weakest flames ever burned, either in space or on the ground. Okay. Yeah. Some of them produce as little as about one watt of thermal power. By comparison, wow. a birthday candle is about 50 watts. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So because... So what's the point of burning something that, that weak? The, the way I like to think about these flame balls is that the, the flame ball is to combustion research mm-hmm. as the fruit fly is to genetics research. Yeah. That is, people who study fruit flies yeah. don't study because they want to make better fruit flies. Right. They study because it's the simplest possible genetic system that can be applied to humans. Yeah. Got it. Same thing with the flame ball. It's Got the it. simplest possible flame that could have relevance to real practical flames. Yeah. Right. And so wow. if your models of combustion can't simulate what's happening in these flame balls, mm-hmm. then they couldn't possibly simulate what's happening you know, in a three-dimensional, turbulent, unsteady you know, c- combustion process inside your car engine. Hmm. Very cool. So and anyway, so so my experience was I got selected not as the prime, not as the person who flew, but as the backup mm-hmm. uh, to him. And actually there was a materials specialist who was chosen who was supposed to have his own backup, but for long story, that that backup dropped out. So I ended up being a backup to Either of the, those two people. The payload specialist? Either, and the, either the payload specialist. So either the, materi- the materials one or the combustion one. Yeah. So if either of them had had some mysterious injury or illness <laughs> at the last minute, then I would have yeah. uh, flown in. Uh, and what mission was that? That was, well, it actually wound up being two missions. Oh, really? Uh-huh. STS-83 yeah. and STS-94, both of them in, two th- uh, in 1997. Hmm. Now, it was only supposed to be one mission, but that was the one space shuttle mission that was cut short. It was supposed to be a, a 16-day mission, and it was cut short to four days because of a fuel cell problem. Yeah. Ironic. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I could have fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> See, had you, you on that could mission, have been, huh? been fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, on the reflight, you know, I was thinking, oh, gee, you know, Greg and Roger, they've had a chance to fly. Maybe one of them, you know, would give me their seat for the reflight. But I realized, you know... They have about as much chance of of giving me giving me their seat on the reflight as of donating a kidney. Yeah. In fact, if it was a choice between the the flight or the kidney, they'd probably give me the kidney. Got it. So you so went through full astronaut training. So yeah, training. I went through all the training. Wow. It's been a year and a half commuting between you know Houston and Huntsville and Florida and Cleveland and you know various uh, Pensacola to do some uh, water survival training things like wow. that. Wow. Um, so I got to play, you know, space camp for a year and a half. That's great. As I, whenever I came home, you know, on Friday evening, my wife would say, so did you have fun playing with your little astronaut friends? <laughs> <laughs> but I think my favorite part was going down to the Cape because yeah. there yeah. you get to stay in, well, A, you get to stay in astronaut crew quarters. Every time you, know, you go into this building and then you make a right turn and there's this big sign that says astronauts only. And your first reaction is turn around. Oh, I can go in there. It's a, Oh, well, maybe I can. That, that's me. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That is so cool. Yeah. And then you can see the real flight hardware. Like one thing um, I remember is in the, the mock-ups of the simulators in Houston, you know, a lot of the interior of the space shuttle in the mock-ups was like kind of really 
cheesy-looking 1970s tacky plastic and Mm -hmm. no industrial design, no thought for, you know, uh, form over function. Yeah. So I thought, I'll bet the real space shuttle is going to be really cool looking inside. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? When I got inside the real orbiter, it looked exactly the same. <laughs> it's just kind of pieced together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pure function. It's a lot cooler in the movies, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's, it doesn't, doesn't look as cool as it does in the movies. Speaking of movies, now you probably aren't old enough to remember a movie or a book called The Right Stuff. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it was a movie about the original seven uh, yeah. Mercury astronauts. Yeah. They, uh-huh. had, they certainly had The Right Stuff. I tell you, training for space flight was not like that at all. No? No. I tell you, you know, training for space flight was like one of the easiest jobs I ever had. Wow. Really? Yeah, because you're pretty much told what to do and when to do it and when mm-hmm. to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anything, I think they should have pushed us harder. Really? Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, there, was, you know there, there wasn't any really demanding physical aspect. And, you know, one of the people, two people I was back up to... Uh, was 57 years old, which at the time seemed like very old. Now I'm 60, so now it doesn't seem so old. And some, you know, 57-year-olds were, you know, in very good physical condition. But he was just, you know, average physical condition. But he did fine in space. There was no no issues at all. Uh, a lot of the movies make it seem yeah. like you're going through like SEAL camp. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like I'm, no, I'm, I'm thinking of the right stuff. I'm thinking, of, yeah. I'm thinking of Armageddon. I don't know why yeah. that's popping up in my head right yeah. now, but all these different. Yeah. Well, Isn't I tell you, yeah. after going like the, they put you in the orange launch and entry suit and um, spin you up through the same launch, uh, the same G profile you'd yeah. feel during launch. The, the, the vomit uh, rocket. That just did, no, no, just they just spin you up in a centrifuge. Okay. Oh, okay. And you go through the same acceleration profile you would yeah. experience during launch. Yeah. And the maximum is only three Gs. That's like a roller coaster. No. Oh. Yeah. And so my action oh. after that was, this is all it takes to get into space. <laughs> so the second run, I said, let me shake my head. Let's see if I can make myself feel a bit <laughs> nauseous or something. Couldn't Nothing. do it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it wasn't really that. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So I tell you, by far, the most difficult part was just all the travel. Yeah. Because, you know, we had to fly commercial. Now, the, the mission specialists and the pilots, well, they... Well, pilots, they flew in T-38s. The mission specialists flew in the back seat of the T-38s, flown by the pilots. But the payload specialists, outsiders like me, we had to fly commercial. Yeah. And, you know, so, and and this was like sort of before everybody had cell phones and Mm -hmm. the internet. So I spent hours and hours and hours tethered to a payphone at airport. In an airport, making and changing hotel and oh. flight and car oh, reservations goodness. because it's not like it's not like we could ever like go to the Cape for a week and then come home. Yeah. Right. It was always like a day at the Cape, a day in Houston, yeah. uh, two days in Cleveland, and the schedule was constantly training because the simulator broke or some crew that had priority over us got you know we got bumped for them, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I was just spent so much time, you know, just. Dealing with the, you know, making, uh, traveling, and also just making and changing travel arrangements. (laughs) So the hardest thing about astronaut training was administrative logistics. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, you've been you've been really great, uh, and we've been talking for a long time. I don't want to keep you for any longer. That, that you well, know. we have to. I have to find out what that fifth. Oh, one that is. fifth thing was. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, there's listeners hang, sitting at Take the yeah. edge of their seat. Yeah. So lecture notes. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the last one, sensors and actuators. Okay. That is, you think about 
just even something like your car nowadays. Before, the only sensor, you didn't really have all these sensors and actuators. About the only thing you had was this little contraption uh, to set the spark timing that had like some centrifugal weights and a little vacuum diaphragm, really kind of a kludgy thing, but it would adjust the timing for load and engine speed. Nowadays, you have hundreds of sensors that measure temperatures, pressures, flow rates, uh, rotation speeds, your... Probably adjusts the adjusts your engine settings depending on what radio station you're listening to, or they're playing upbeat music <laughs> or slow music. They have all kinds of uh, of these things nowadays. Yeah. And then actuators, based on all this input, you have some sort of onboard computer that then processes all this information and then adjust fuel flow, ignition timing, airflow rate, what transmission gear. Mm-hmm. Maybe it changes your radio station for you too. Hmm. So the five things were CAD? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have CAD, simulation, 3D printing, collaboration, and sensors, sensors and, and actuators. actuators. Very cool. I think that's an awesome point to end on. Thank you so much for coming. Okay. We'll Thank definitely you. have to have you back in some time. We'll have a, yeah. another idea we'll tell you about offline. But okay. uh, thanks for coming. Thank that was so great. Much. Appreciate sure. it. And that just about wraps up this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on SoundCloud. For our prospective students out there, make sure you're checking viterbiadmission.usc.edu for any updates on the application. And for the rest of you, keep reading our blogs and fight on. See you next week. <laughs>